Hello, and welcome to 15-Minute History. Each week, we teach you about important people, events, and places in 15 minutes. If this is your first time here, then thanks for joining us. Stay connected with us wherever you listen to podcasts and at our website at aetgroup.org, where you can find these recordings and transcripts for each episode. Now, let's start the show. Winds of the world give answer, they're whimpering to and fro. And what should they know of England and who only England know? The poor little street-bred people that vapor and fume and brag. They are lifting their heads in the stillness to yelp at the English flag. Rudyard Kipling, The English Flag The Iron Chancellor of the German Empire, Otto von Bismarck, surveyed the magnificent room in the Reich Chancellery. Only 15 years ago, his nation had been born in the fires of war with France, and today he stood at the head of Europe, militarily, economically, and now diplomatically. His goal, as ever, was to hold the center, to maintain the balance of power in Europe that would keep the peace, and more importantly, preserve Germany's supremacy on the continent. Delegates from 12 colonial European powers and the United States had gathered in Berlin to discuss how they might divide up the African continent among themselves. The English, as ever, believed it was their burden to bring civilization and Christianity to native savages worldwide. The French, still reeling from their humiliating defeat in 1870, were reaching out greedily in West Africa, hoping to salvage their reputation as a great power. The Danish and Swedish dignitaries stood in a corner speaking quietly, and Bismarck assumed they were plotting to revive their once proud colonial empires. The emissary from Austria was looking daggers at his Ottoman Turkish rival, while the Russian envoy was drinking heavily and loudly proclaiming his Tsar's interests in the Balkans and the Dardanelles. Old women shaking their parasols at one another, the Chancellor mused to himself. Italy's representative was standing nearby, trying to catch Bismarck's eye, but he studiously turned away to look at the American, tall and loud as always, speaking to the dignitaries from Portugal, the Netherlands, and Belgium. The new world standing up for the rights of the little folk as ever. In Bismarck's eyes, none of these petty, squabbling diplomats could match his own greatness and skill at the negotiating table. Like a poker player, Bismarck showed no emotion beyond mild courtesy as he greeted each man and spent a few moments chatting with each about their families. He was not here to make friends. He was here to protect his empire. Motivations for Imperialism Europeans had been establishing settlements in what today would be called the Third World since the mid-15th century. Early on, these isolated frontier outposts were centers of commerce between Europeans and natives. The exception to this early model of colonial settlement was the Kingdom of Spain, which ruthlessly butchered tens of thousands of natives in its conquest of Latin America. The Spaniards were driven to this conquest model of imperialism by the immense wealth of these lands in the New World, as well as a desire among devout Catholics to spread their faith to the natives who had not yet heard the gospel. Eventually, the English followed in Spain's footsteps in their establishment of the Thirteen Colonies and the wars they fought against Native Americans. France treated its native subjects in Canada somewhat better, but it too was motivated by the wealth of its lands in the New World. When the wars of the 18th century scrambled the colonial map of North America, Great Britain emerged as the victorious empire which dominated the continent, but American independence then put an end to its imperial ambitions south of the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes. 
Nevertheless, a desire for wealth to be drawn in from the wider world remained a focal point of colonial and imperial policy in London, Paris, and the other capitals of Europe. Of course, the New World was not the sole focus of imperial ambitions prior to the 19th century, and every major seafaring power in Europe established settlements along the coasts of Africa and India and on islands in the South Pacific. Once again, trade was the dominant motivation for these settlements, and kings or prime ministers regularly traded small forts or outposts with each other as compensations after wars, dowries and royal marriages, or simply to cut expenses to their treasuries. Thus, a desire for wealth cannot alone account for what happened to the African continent during the late 19th century. The new imperialism of 1881 to 1914 was a product of old attitudes of mercantile wealth transfers and religious zeal for converts, combined with two new developments in European society which arose during the first half of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution and the ideology of social Darwinism. In the last years of the 18th century, Great Britain had begun its transformation from an economy based on agrarian farming to one of industrial manufacturing. The vast deposits of coal and iron in the British Isles, combined with the government in London's attitude of laissez-faire when it came to workers' rights and conditions in factories, turned Great Britain into the dominant economic power in Europe by the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. For the next half-century, Britain maintained this supremacy while at the same time expanding its influence in India and southern Africa and drawing more resources from the earth to fuel its factories and textile mills. The British also ended their centuries-long rivalry with France by signing commercial treaties with the old enemy across the Channel, and by 1860 it appeared that an era of peace and prosperity had begun. Of course, Eastern Europe was still a chaotic amalgamation of feuding nationalities ruled by incompetent dilettantes in Vienna, Constantinople, and St. Petersburg. But Britain, France, Spain, Portugal, and the small Italian and German states had established cordial trading relationships that benefited everyone. Raw materials came to Britain from its overseas empire in India and South Africa, where they were transformed into luxury goods that went to market in a thousand cities and towns across Western Europe. Then, there arose in Germany a man who would not let the post-Napoleonic settlement and this so-called peace deter him from his dream, Otto von Bismarck. Harnessing the latent nationalism and a desire for greatness within the German heart, he forged his home country of Prussia into an iron fist that upended the status quo in Western Europe. Once his work was done, the new German Empire was in a perfect position to challenge the economic supremacy of Great Britain. In London, politicians began to look for new sources of raw materials, specifically to put into their shipbuilding programs as the German Navy began to grow. Britain's defenses rested on the Royal Navy, and in order to obtain the iron and coal for new ships, its empire needed to grow. From Egypt and the Suez Canal to the south, and from the Cape of Good Hope to the north, British influence spread across the African continent, and the businessman-turned-politician Cecil Rhodes began to dream of a Cape to Cairo British Empire in Africa. About a decade before German unification, the British naturalist Charles Darwin had published his seminal book on the origin of species by means of natural selection, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life, in 1859. The central idea in the book was natural selection, that strong members of a species tended to propagate their characteristics over weaker ones. The book caused a tremendous stir in the scientific community that, while important, is not germane to our topic today, but it also led some sociologists and politicians to apply its principles to areas outside biology, which Darwin never intended, at least at first. 
Soon, self-proclaimed social Darwinists were using the idea of natural selection to justify all manner of cultural, artistic, political, and most importantly for our purpose, imperial policies. To these elites, the evident superiority of white nations in Europe, railroads, factories, indoor plumbing, etc., were proof that they deserved to conquer and subjugate so-called lesser races in the Third World. Soon, books and pamphlets proving the superiority of the white race and the necessity for civilizing savages were spreading in all languages across Europe. Writers like Rudyard Kipling were penning jingoistic poems urging nations to carry their flags into the dark spaces of the world to shine the light of enlightenment to those trapped in backward societies. Politicians like Austin Chamberlain in Great Britain, Charles Fluquet in France, and Leo von Caprivi in Germany were pushing their fellows to fund imperial expansions specifically in Africa. A desire for wealth, for competitive advantage over rival nations, and for white dominion over lesser races would now unleash the forces of new imperialism upon the continent of Africa. Methods of Imperialism in 1870, a year before the formation of the German Empire, only 10% of the African continent was under European control, but by 1914 that number had risen to nearly 90%. The scramble for Africa traces its origins to the British explorer Henry Morton Stanley, who surveyed and built infrastructure in the Congo River Basin for King Leopold II of Belgium. Stanley's expedition, and especially the vast wealth of the region, led several European colonial powers to quickly establish settlements and try to claim these lands for themselves. King Leopold was desperate to hold the basin for himself, as he had gotten there first, so he appealed to Chancellor Bismarck of Germany to host a conference to settle the issue. Bismarck, always looking for ways to increase his nation's prestige over that of France or Britain, agreed and called the Berlin Conference, where 14 nations decided that for a piece of territory to be considered a European colony, it must be effectively occupied. That is, the colonizing nation had to have protectorate treaties with local rulers, have established white settlements which flew that nation's flag, and a system to govern the land. Gone were the days of simply planting a flag and claiming the land for Spain or another country. The Berlin Conference gave the Congo River Basin to Belgium, and Leopold personally annexed the entire region. It became his personal property. The settlement of the Congo issue then touched off a race to claim as much land as possible in Africa. Germany initially stood aside, content with its preeminence in continental Europe, but Britain, France, Italy, Portugal, and Spain all immediately began to gobble up as much African land as they could. Colonization was as simple as drawing lines on the map and then sending out settlers and engineers to build the infrastructure and live in the homes of new white settlements inside those lines. No attention was paid to local tribal boundaries, which in hindsight was disastrous, and the gray areas of the African map were soon filled in. Imperial administration usually followed one of two models, creating a protectorate or annexing the territory outright. Protectorates involved establishing alliances with local tribal leaders who would swear allegiance to a European monarch or nation and would receive weapons and money in order to keep the peace in return for giving the Europeans resources and labor. Smaller nations like Portugal and those countries who wished to devote more money to domestic spending programs like Great Britain typically created protectorates in Africa. On the other hand, those nations who wished to rule with an iron fist and had the resources to do so would annex their colonies. They would overthrow and crush any local ruler who did not submit to imperial authority, 
and would replace existing local institutions with those of the white overlords. These two methods of imperialism both led to nearly a half-century of European dominion of Africa, but they would lead to very different post-colonial conditions once the Europeans withdrew. Turning Points, Both Good and Bad When covering the history of an entire continent for almost a century, it is necessary first and foremost to be brief. It is also important to consider both the good and the bad outcomes of imperialism, both for the Europeans and for the native Africans. I hope that you will bear in mind that nearly every policy and action in human history has had both good and bad results, and will understand that one can consider both sides of an issue without labeling the entire policy as either good or bad. How did imperialism benefit those involved? For Europeans, the resources of Africa allowed a higher standard of living and cheaper consumer goods like clothing, jewelry, and food. Many Europeans traveled to Africa on safari or other expeditions and gained a new understanding of the wider world. Some came to live in Africa, adopted certain local customs, and became integrated within the colonial society. When the wars of the 20th century came, colonial Europeans and the African troops they led contributed greatly to the defeat of Prussian militarism and Nazi totalitarianism. For the peoples of Africa in many parts of the continent, European rule meant an end to horrific practices like slavery, caste-based discrimination, and ethnic warfare. No European imperial power permitted one person to own another, and few allowed one tribe to massacre another, though there are exceptions to this. Standards of living and life expectancy increased, and rates of crime and violence decreased in Africa during the imperial period. Now, once again, it must be stated categorically that this is not meant as an endorsement of imperialism as a policy. We here at 15-Minute History do not wish to see any country conquer and exploit another. We are here to provide the facts of history, both good and bad. How did imperialism harm those involved? This is a much longer list, and it gets pretty depressing. The conquest of Africa gave Europeans an inflated view of themselves and of their place in the world. When one nation can overthrow another, which might have existed for centuries, and then set up its own institutions to rule its new subjects at a cost of only a few hundred or maybe a thousand soldiers, that nation might get it into its collective head that it is a superior race, that war should be an instrument of national policy rather than a last recourse in defense of one's liberty, and that God had ordained it to rule lesser peoples. Whole generations of Europeans lived their lives convinced that they were the supreme example of all creation, leading to tragic decreases in religious practice, and some would argue, millions of souls lost to hell. Those same generations became inured to the horrors of war, even as new weapons like machine guns, barbed wire, and tanks were on the horizon. They even thought that war might be a fun diversion from the humdrum of life. In 1914, they were proven wrong. The long-term effects of imperialism on African societies are too numerous to detail in our remaining minutes, but suffice it to say that the continent still has not fully recovered. The lands owned by Europeans were stripped bare of resources, impoverishing entire communities. Imperial overlords allowed or even committed barbaric atrocities, possibly up to and including genocide. In the Belgian Congo, the most conservative estimates put the death toll at at least 5 million from 1885 to 1908. In British South Africa, the Boer Wars of 1900 to 1902 saw the first use of concentration camps by a European power and were a model specifically cited by Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf. 
In Kenya, during the Mau Mau uprising of 1952-60, British soldiers used sexual violence as a means of deterring rebellion. In French Algeria, French soldiers massacred 15,000 peaceful demonstrators in just two days in May 1945. In German Namibia, the Germans wiped out 80% of the Herero tribe from 1904 to 1907 for the crime of wanting self-determination. In lands annexed directly by the Europeans, the decades of white rule left locals with no institutions or trained leaders capable of governing their fellow former subjects once the Europeans began to decolonize the continent, though this was less of a problem in protectorates as local rulers were cultivated to take over once the Europeans had left. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the borders of former colonies were not adjusted to reflect natural or ethnic boundaries once these nations had been given their freedom. As a result, old tribal rivalries, which had been suppressed while the Europeans ruled, then flared up when those restraints were gone. To cite just one example, the Rwandan genocide of 1994 was a direct result of this policy of quick borders being drawn without considering local conditions. When Rwanda was created in 1922 by the Belgian government, the region contained two tribes with centuries of hatred built up between them, the Hutus and the Tutsis. When Rwanda was given its independence and formed a democratic government in 1962, these ethnic tensions resurfaced and led to an increasing number of attacks by one group against the other. Civil war broke out in 1990, and after the president was assassinated four years later, the Hutus murdered nearly one million Tutsis over the course of about 100 days. Of course, Belgium's ignorance of ethnic conditions in Rwanda does not absolve the Hutus of their crimes against the Tutsis, and the genocide might still have taken place, but the conditions which led to these atrocities were set in place decades earlier. Fate or Free Will over the course of this season, we have discussed so many turning points in which it seemed inevitable that one event would lead to another. To close this podcast out, I think it is important to state for you, our audience, that nothing in history is certain. Free men and women can make whatever decisions that they wish, for there is no fate but what we make, to quote a famous movie. People made decisions at turning points in history which led to important and long-lasting consequences. It is crucial to remember that the Europeans who conquered and colonized Africa a century and a half ago were not supremely evil. Their motivations were certainly not pure, and the tragic results speak for themselves. For us, as students of history, we should consider objectively the events of the past and make judgments about them, but we should not vilify any group today because of the sins their ancestors created. To do so is to create unnecessary and dangerous conflict in a world which certainly does not need any more strife. As Winston Churchill once said, if we open a quarrel between past and present, we shall find we have lost the future. Thank you for joining us on 15-Minute History. Please take a moment and leave us a review and tell your friends about this podcast. We hope you will join us for our discussion on this topic and tune in next week as we walk in history's footsteps 15 minutes at a time.